That is an example of exactly this technology coming in and being treated as the arbiter of truth in the sense that there is a cost to how much truth we want. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about artificial intelligence, uh, AI. And immediately, yes, I know you've likely heard all you want to hear about AI by now, about generative AI art tools that create images based on text prompts and how those same tools are threatening the livelihoods of countless artists, about large language models that power things like ChatGPT and Google's Bard and their ability to, say, write book reports, or to tailor recipes for specific diets, or to just be factually incorrect about the things they say. More on that later. And about, I mean, okay, just a few months ago, right, we spoke about the applications of machine learning and AI in cybersecurity. And so all of this is to say, I get it. But there is, I think, a bigger story here about a worrying tilt of turning AI into an arbiter of truth. At the RSA conference in San Francisco this year, I saw many, too many presentations about how natural language processing tools like ChatGPT could be applied to cybersecurity. All of the presentations imagine pretty much the same thing, a day when a company's security director could open up their laptop and ask an AI security chatbot, What's going on in my environment today? And like something out of a 1950s vision of the future, the chatbot would solve all our problems, would answer all our questions. Unusual login activity detected using a U.S. employee's credentials at 2.30 a.m. Potential account compromise. Or web shell installation over the weekend. Potential ransomware attack in progress. This hypothetical chatbot could simplify and streamline the arduous process of prioritizing security alerts, of detecting suspicious activity instead of just known bad activity, and of even spotting threat actors before they can launch an attack. And that sounds great. It honestly does. But let's remember that even with today's large language models, problems abound. And one of the biggest problems is accuracy. Tools like ChatGPT have been witnessed hallucinating, which is a very human word we use to describe factual inaccuracies or entire fabrications made by these chat tools. This year, a user on Reddit shared that when they asked ChatGPT for, quote, papers on the relationship between homeschooling and neuroplasticity, end quote, ChatGPT told them about the following paper, Homeschooling and the Development of Cognitive Skills, a Systematic Review, which could be found in Educational Psychology Review, Series 24, Issue 4, on pages 477 through 493. It was published in 2012. Its authors are Moratori MC, Lamport D, and Moratori F. The problem is that the paper does not exist. And so, for cybersecurity... Even before we get to the concerns of fact, there are still many concerns about whether any assistant AI chatbot is 
properly trained on a robust data set? Has that data set been shared with the public and other companies that can provide independent review? Can an AI chatbot produce its own false positive? And if so, how do we detect those? Uh, will the AI chatbot need to continuously learn from new data? And if so, at what rate and pace to avoid becoming obsolete? But my biggest concern, again, is that we're trying to use AI as an intermediary to truth at a time when the concept of truth is fragile. Public trust in journalism is at an all-time low. Disinformation campaigns against companies are a rising threat. Conspiracy theories sprout up every day online on YouTube. There are core problems in truth and in community agreement and trust in institutions like the media, like the government, like the church. And so some of the applications of AI feel like a veneer to these problems. Almost like we are hoisting up a technology onto an altar that does not fit. Today, to provide some insight on AI's future, its distortions on the concept of truth, and what we're supposed to do with all of that, we're speaking again with my colleagues, security evangelist Mark Stockley and Mauerbytes Labs editor-in-chief Anna Brading. Mark, Anna, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having us on. It's nice to be back. Thank you for coming back. Uh, we are excited to have you here, and this is probably quite exciting because we had actually wanted to start this episode around this concept of, is truth dead? But I actually think like we would have had a very quick answer, which was yes, and then we, <laughs> and then we would have done nothing. The about six months ago, we asked, like, is it too late for data privacy? And then both of you said yes. And then we just had to fill up 45 minutes of time. <laughs> so to maybe avoid that issue this time around, I have headed you off at the pass. And I am going to try something a little different here. And I'm going to ask instead something that I teased at the beginning there, right? Which is, are we trying to turn AI into an arbiter of truth? And if so, what are the consequences of that? That's a good question. There isn't a simple answer. So I'm erring towards yes. That does seem to be the direction that we have taken. It's interesting to recall that ChatGPT, which is really what's made this go kind of stratospheric, only came out late November last year, I think. It seems to have infected everybody. And we're in that phase where people are trying to work out what it's actually for. Because large language models, are that, they're that curious thing that they have emergent behavior. So you build something like ChatGPT and you anticipate that it will be good at some things. And it may well turn out to be good at other things you hadn't anticipated. And you, you know it's going to have problems, but you may not be able to understand where the problems are. So you have to use the hell out of it in order to figure out what it can't do and what it can do. And it feels like one of the really strong directions that we're taking it in is this idea that it can be an arbiter of truth, that Bing and Google are desperately trying to shoehorn this into search results, which, I mean, people certainly rely on them for a certain degree of truthfulness. Yeah, you say trying to turn it into an arbiter of truth, but I think people are already presuming that it is, aren't they, a lot of people? I mean, people that are using it are assuming that what it is producing, many people are presuming that it, what it turns out is the truth. 
And there's been lots and lots of things reasonably recently, I would say in the last couple of months, especially, which are proving that to not be the case. So there is a case at the moment in front of the District Court of the Southern District of New York between a guy called Roberto Mata and Avianca Inc. So Avianca is Colombia's biggest airline. Basically, Avianca filed a motion to dismiss, so they tried to get the case thrown out. And Mata's lawyers came back with a rebuttal, and the rebuttal cited a bunch of legal cases. And ultimately, they had to provide not just the names, you know, such and such versus such and such case numbers and what have you, but they actually had to provide the written judicial judgments. And six out of eight were definitely false. I'm not sure about the other two. And what happened was Matter's lawyer asked another lawyer to do the research, and that lawyer used ChatGPT, and ChatGPT just made up a bunch of stuff. It just, it made up. I think the lawyer said, didn't he say he was completely unaware of the possibility that ChatGPT's content could be false. Yes. So as far as I can gather, he's actually got away with it in the sense that what followed was this idea that, okay, well, the judge said to the lawyer, tell us why we shouldn't sanction you. And his defense was essentially, this is the first time I've used ChatGPT. I had no idea it could just make stuff up. He thought it was a wonder tool. It was saving him a bunch of time. And it was saving him a bunch of time because it wasn't doing the work. It was just making stuff up. So it was hallucinating <laughs> in the words of LLMs. And this is the, uh, I mean, we've been talking about this literally since ChatGPT came out. The, the disarming and dangerous thing about tools like ChatGPT is the apparent confidence with which they deliver results. So confidence is a thing that we kind of overlay onto ChatGPT. Obviously, it's neither confident nor lacking in confidence. It's just a machine. But we perceive in its responses because it, you know, it's generally got a response. Before we, I, did, I would just wonder if it's worth explaining to anybody listening who hasn't used ChatGPT, just like in simple terms, what it is and, and how you interact with it. Yeah, absolutely. So, ChatGPT is a to call it a chat bot is, I think, a bit rudimentary, but that is what we see at the end. You know, that's the product that's in package for us. It is something that you can ask a question to. And it responds. And it is trained on an enormous quantity of written text, of written data. That is why it is a large language model that is powering it. It's modeled after an extraordinary large volume of language. And we've had tools like this for a bit that are just to predict what the next word in a sentence will be. I think people actually might be quite familiar with this if they use... Gmail or they use Outlook, sometimes you see these actually implemented into when you are writing an email, those tools want to help you close out an email. The way we speak is so <laughs> formulaic. That's not the response they generate in me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't like them either. I hate them, but they're like, it says, well, the most emails end with thank you. And if you type T-H-A, it's like, you're probably just going to say thank you. And... It's just trying to predict what the next writes. Mark is actually not speaking. He's not saying thank you. He's saying, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Do not email me again. <laughs> I've had a few of them from Mark. But for a large number of people, at least, 
Gmail, Google and Microsoft think that's the way you should close an email. And so that's sort of the idea. And ChatGPT is doing somewhat the same thing. It's actually trained on making a sentence sound like something we have read before. It's why it's so good at miming patterns of speech. It's really good at miming, for instance, hey, tell me something as though it was a verse in the King James Bible. Well, it's 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 read the King James Bible and it understands how words go together in that script as opposed to a modern email. And that's kind of what it's doing, um, but it's also shockingly good at perhaps creating new things, substituting things together, cobbling them together so that you get something new. Um, as I said at the beginning of the episode, something that it actually surprises me about is you say, hey, I want recipes for dinner tonight and I have these ingredients. And it says, okay, like you should make this. And then you say, I'm a vegetarian. And then it finds a substitute, which I think is pretty interesting. And so that's what ChatGPT is. And so there's people who are having fun with it. And then there's companies that are trying to make it into something. And that's also what I saw at RSA is a dramatic number of companies saying, this is the solution for many problems that we have, right? Real legitimate problems in security awareness and security software, which is being bombarded by notifications, not knowing what those notifications mean, not knowing how to act on them. And so you just kind of come in and you stroll into the office and you open up your machine and you say, what's going on in my environment today? And it says, it's over, you know, <laughs> there's ransomware, it's too late. You should have had something more than me. Um, Leave. But that's what I see. And that's that kind of race to implement this when we know it has problems. That's bizarre to me. Like, we're just choosing it. We're like, oh, yeah, this one, I don't know. We'll figure it out later. We'll work out the kinks. And that's not even to talk about all of the issues mm. of, like, there's a company out there, OpenAI, which is calling for regulation of its own product. None of that I'm entering into. It's just, it's factually wrong. <laughs> and we're saying, yeah, but what if it like, what if, but what if it told us the truth? <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> so to go back to this idea of the arbiter of truth, here's what worries me. Uh, about 10 years ago, I worked for a company that was in the translation space. And machine translation, which is basically translation that relies on this sort of AI on a smaller scale, was just coming in. And it was eating the lunch of human translators. And the quality of the machine translation was nowhere near the quality of the human translators. But it was an awful lot cheaper. And so what happened was, firstly, translations that would not otherwise have happened got made, which is probably a good thing. So more things in general got translated than would ever be translated by humans. But some of those humans were replaced entirely by machine translations of a much, much lower quality because the calculation was simply, that's okay. People can sort of make up the difference in their mind. They'll get the gist and the gist will be good enough. And then the translators that were left, a bunch of them ended up being people who edit machine translations. So instead of translating things from scratch, their job was to look at things a machine had translated and fix what it had got wrong, which if you talk to the translators, they may well tell you <laughs> they're basically doing the same job for less money. And so for me, that is an example of exactly this technology coming in and being treated as the arbiter of truth in the sense that there is a cost to how much truth we want. 
And interestingly, you see the same thing in user research. If you do user observation tests and you ask people to go and research a subject, they're very rarely looking for the definitive answer. What they're looking for is some sort of crossover between a good enough answer and how much effort they're prepared to put in. I worry about it in the translation space, and I think basically everything is now the translation space. Everything is potentially up for grabs with people who maybe don't have a great idea about what things like ChatGPT can actually do and what its limitations are, and maybe don't have a great idea about what value humans add in certain situations. I I, I think and the only way I can see that actually being sorted out is through a lot of things happening where people are replaced by ChatGPT, and then ultimately it comes out, it, it, either it's a good replacement or it's a good enough replacement, or it turns out to be a lousy replacement, but it's going to take us a few years to get to the point where we realize what it can't do. And there will be successive yeah. iterations of AI arriving in that period that may continue to distract people. Talking about the translations, I also know someone that works in translation tech, and they were saying that the translators tend to now be much older. They started at a, a certain age when they were younger, and they tend to be much older because people just aren't coming into the industry because it's the machine translation has just removed any kind of creativity that the translators had. And so, as you say, Mark, they're just correcting like little bits that are wrong with the machine translation. I'm presuming that's no fun for someone whose interest is words and doing things with words. You don't want to just be correcting like a couple of typos or the way something's phrased. So yeah, that's interesting. Um, can we just, just yeah. going back to the lawyer, the airlines story, um, what I thought was interesting is that the lawyer said that he or the, the one, the person that did the chat GPT generation actually asked chat GPT if the cases were real <laughs> and chat GPT said yes. And they had, they had been found in reputable legal databases so I think that's interesting as well, because it's not, so it's not only making stuff up, it's actually saying, you know, if it's directly asked as well, it's lying, it's what it's doing. Yeah, I just wanted to say really quickly, can we call it lying? Because <laughs> it feels like it's lying. Uh, yeah, I know, it's really hard. <laughs> it's hallucinating. <laughs> We, we, yeah, can, yeah. we can call I mean, it hallucinating <laughs> isn't hallucinating isn't the right word in the in that case because if it's saying are the cases real? Yes, that's not hallucinating. That is, you know, we need a word for it, but it is lying. But there was another one that was sort of even worse in my head. In that, so a lawyer, as part of a research study, another lawyer was asking ChatGPT to generate a list of legal scholars who had sexually harassed someone. So he wanted a list. And on the list was the name Jonathan Turley. Um, it said that Turley had made sexually suggestive comments and attempted to touch a student inappropriately on a class trip to Alaska. And same thing, it cited an actual article in the Washington Post as a source, but the article didn't exist, the class trip didn't exist, and neither did the harassment. So it's got the power to sort of end re reputations, careers. It's, I mean, that's just awful. Kind of going back to the idea of uh, everything is translation now, right? That you had seen the translation industry just decimated yeah. by machine translation. And I wondered what that means moving forward if everything is, if we simply become fixers, you know, we simply become people who fix AI's mistakes. And so we're there to spot things and then we correct it and then we, you know, and then we move about our day because that feels like it's sustainable only for a couple of generations of people because at a certain point we will lose the ability 
to see what is incorrect because we're accepting that we are losing our own expertise in a field. And so our knowledge only goes so long as us. And it was very concerning because I see that happen quite a bit. Like we are, we are comfortable with filling in the gaps as people every single day. We see misspellings online and we're like, okay, well, we'll just kind of get through it. And we see sentences that don't really work and we say, okay, we'll just kind of get through it. Um, are you talking about my work now? <laughs> and so we just Spelling have to Spelling mistakes, things that, things that don't work. We just have to hit publish, you know, and just go because we have so many other things. Drum, turn a blind eye, can't do. be editing all day. Um, but I think all of us have seen before that everyone at work has someone who they work with, who their emails do not make sense. Just literally, logistically... <laughs> <laughs> I feel personally attacked, David. And, it's, and it takes so much brain power to just be like, what the hell are you, what are you talking about? And for us to be reduced to that, I think, like that's the work we're doing, but we're fixing it for AI. Again, I worry that there's no sustainable future for us if all we are doing is we're filling in the gaps for mistakes that machines are making. Because again, we know what those gaps are because we have been trained to spot what like good information is. But if we accept that AI is truth, then we just have people who are going to be cross-referencing AI with other AI. And that's not where truth is. And that's concerning. That's it. I, I don't really know what the, I don't know what the consequences of that, you know, because I don't know what the end of humanity looks like but <laughs> but that concerns me yeah haven't the um the tech big wigs like elon musk steve wozniak and others have asked the la ai labs to pause training of systems more powerful than gpt4 um I've got a I've got a quote from the letter. Hold on here. It's, it says, should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete and replace us? Should we risk loss of control of our civilization? Powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. Don't you think this is a weird thing about this debate? Because what group of humans on the planet would listen to those questions and go, no, <laughs> we should just plough ahead with AI. That's going to kill us. We should definitely do that. Um, but then you get into the sort of weird, you know, the effects of groups of people making decisions rather than individuals. Uh, well, also yeah. the labs are competing against each other. They want to be the fastest. They want to be the best. Like, no, exactly. That's what I mean. But I, I, yeah. none of those labs want to die at the hands of AI. But none of them imagine that the, the small incremental step that they're taking exactly, in, in order yeah. to beat the other one is a small incremental step towards this, this sort of nightmare of the general AI singularity, which is the theoretical point where a general AI is so good that it's better at working on itself than humans. And so it self-improves and then it becomes better at self-improving and then it, it gets exponentially better at self-improving. And then yeah. at that point, we can't see into the future. We can't see past that. And we've got no idea what happens after the singularity, which is what people like Wozniak. And maybe the untruths don't matter. Like maybe to chat GPT and it's self-improvement, maybe it doesn't matter that there are untruths. 
it's like the worst sociopath ever. Right. Like what if it, what if it, because I know that the, the nightmare scenario is that it evaluates us and it's like, we're in the way. And so yeah. it wants to get rid of us. But what, what if it just placates us? You know, like what if it's, what if it's extraordinarily boring and mundane? Um, mm. it, it gets better at self-improvement. Absolutely. But it realizes that the best way to do it is not extermination, but is just, eh, just let them get fat and happy. And then, you know, somewhere down the line. But for like a good <laughs> 20 years, I mean, we've got like the Pax Romana, you know, of like the global civilization. And, you know, there's going to be so much Netflix content. I <laughs> well, I, I think it was Steve Wozniak who said that our best chance is to make really good pets. Like we, we have to become, we have to become really yeah. appealing pets for yeah. AI. I suspect, I mean, we are looking into the realms of the, the, the far future and the highly unlikely, I think. Although I saw this really interesting uh, suggestion the other day. So it was an ex-colleague of mine was jousting with Josh Sachs, who is a guest you've had on the podcast. He's brilliant yeah, um, yeah. cybersecurity AI uh, mind a researcher. And Josh and, and people like him are very much like, look, you, you don't understand AI the risks of generalized AI and a singularity are so tight, like we're just so far away from it, blah, blah, blah. And this other colleague piped up and he had a clipping from a newspaper from, I think it was a month before the Wright brothers made their first flight. And it was somebody confidently explaining how humans would never be able to take flight. That (laughs) powered flight was impossible like with incremental improvements maybe in a million years we would be able to make an aircraft that actually flew but it was basically physically impossible and just using that as a kind of look you're what if the experts are too close to the problem you know it doesn't always We've been wrong before it yeah. doesn't always progress in the way that you expect it to i wanted to say something about about layers of abstraction because you said earlier like what if we just become the fixers yeah, and I've, yeah. Got, I've got bad news for you because one of the interesting things that I've seen over my career is in computing what happens is each successive generation of technology just builds on top of the previous generation. So in the beginning, you have people who understand microprocessors really well and they make instructions in machine, in, in the language that the microprocessor speaks. They do it in machine code. And then somebody invents a programming language like C, which is much, much easier to use than machine code. And you get all these machine code purists standing around stroking their chin, looking at these Johnny-come-lately C programmers and saying, well, this isn't going to wash because they don't understand it. Like, it's very inefficient. It doesn't understand, they don't understand how to make you know, really, really efficient, fast machine code. And then the C programmers are followed by Java programmers. And Java's got garbage collection, so it's not as efficient as the C. And all the C programmers are standing around stroking their beards going, you know, this isn't going to wash and just layer and layer and layer and layer. And even in my career, like, you know, the, the things I needed to understand in order to get stuff done, the people who are coming in to do that job now don't need to understand the same thing. They're understanding two, three layers of abstraction above that. Now you still need a small number of people at each layer. There are still people who understand machine code, but the number of people who understand it is much, much smaller than it used to be. And the number of people who understand languages like C and Fortran is that will go down over time as well. So we're talking about a slightly different realm of knowledge, but I think actually 
what you're talking about is something that does happen already as a matter of course. And we just maybe need to get used to it. Mm. On Josh Sachs, as you were saying, he's he's been on the show and something that he spoke about that I thought was interesting on that exact note of like a month before the Wright brothers flew, there was anticipation that it would never happen. He had mentioned that unpredictable things have occurred when you feed uh, machine learning systems insane amounts of information, just completely bonkers quantities. And one example he had was that a machine learning system that was just supposed to do predictive text, so like that kind of thing I said at the beginning about email, that it was actually able to do simple arithmetic after being fed a large quantity of information, which is kind of crazy because it was fed text and then it produced basic math. And that another one is that, um, I believe I'm remembering this correctly, that uh, we can now predict the shape of proteins because we fed a machine learning system a massive quantity of information. And this was a problem that had been investigated for like 60 to 70 years in science to mm. predict the shape of a protein. And very quickly, like the reason the shape of a protein matters is, so proteins are actually like these really coiled up cords of material and they twist and they turn and they, they corkscrew. And if we know the shape of a protein, we can actually create drugs that will interlock with that shape, right? Like actually when I say shape, I mean the physical three-dimensional shape. Yeah. And so we can make drugs that are more, they will be more effective because they will land on their host, you know, more mm. quickly yeah. and they will interlock. And also we can, we could make proteins that will also boost organic processes already. So we could potentially increase the rate of biodegradability because we could feed proteins into a substance and then that substance would be, it would ramp up its digestion of biomaterial, which is Crazy, and these things could never have been done before. Um, like, this is actually an insane improvement. This is wild. These are, like, wholly positively good things. And then I also asked him, okay, like, can that also happen with... We were talking about self-driving cars. I was like, can there just be a random explosion at any moment? Like, with self-driving cars actually becoming viable? And it was fun to hear him say... Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't predict anything in AI. You can't. Mm. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it was this moment of like, I, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I guess if I'm asked to predict what tomorrow brings in AI, I'm going to say I can't tell you because yeah. I can't tell you. And you're like, oh, well, oh, okay. Um, and so it, it does just sort of get into that idea of an explosion could happen any moment and we could race forward. And... I realize we've been talking a lot about, okay, like AI is bad at this. AI is bad at that. AI is great at proteins. Way to go. Um, <laughs> but all of this is to say, um, okay, so what's the consequence then? A lawyer was made a fool of. Okay, mm. that's tangible. That's there. Kids are getting caught for plagiarism. That's tangible. That's there. Some people are losing their jobs very likely today. You know, I'm sure there are companies out there that are saying, well, let's just replace these writers with ChatGPT or let's, you know, let's change their job so that they're more this and that they simply produce more content um, and they clutter up the web, which is what we love doing. Um, <laughs> okay, so like those are small 
you could say those are small things. Those are individualized things. What are big picture consequences when we just have a thing that's wrong a lot? Like, can we not just spot it? You know, uh, I guess I'm trying to play the other side. Okay, it's wrong. So what? Isn't it just like more more of the fake news? If we're talking about trust, we just won't know what to trust. So it's just going to, isn't that just going to proliferate? I'll, I'll give you a big picture consequence. What Anna is saying, the end point for that is a loss of social cohesion. As the cost of producing disinformation and misinformation goes down and the speed with which you can produce it goes up, that suggests that we're going to get more of it. And what I think has been shown about misinformation, the, the advantage that misinformation has is that it's more attractive than information. So information is, it is as attractive as it is. You know, a fact is true. Its attractiveness is not material to its truthfulness. But attractiveness is everything for misinformation. So you can make misinformation that is as attractive as possible because you're not worried about the truth part. And so it can spread, and it does spread, far more readily than truth. And we're already seeing the consequences of that. We're seeing the consequences of disinformation produced by you know farms of people whose job it is to produce that. Well, those people have now got a machine gun <laughs> for producing disinformation and misinformation. And the whole thing is Darwinian because you can feed back and you can say, well, this kind of misinformation worked extremely well. Let's produce more misinformation. It's like the pictures in Midjourney. Let's have another picture like that. Let's have five pictures like that. That's a hot button. So that worries me. You know, civilizations, countries are so large with so many different pockets of people in them. Our ability to produce misinformation that spreads very rapidly and very readily, but also our ability to produce misinformation that is highly focused. So it doesn't have to be one message for everyone. It could be one message for three people, a hundred million times over. So just the right message to just the right people. And you could cause a lot of discord very, very easily. So I think that's, for me, that's what's at stake. Yeah, I think on that same idea of the loss of trust, we've actually been going through a loss of trust, I think, as a civilization for an extraordinarily long time. And the end result hasn't been good. We've lost trust in institutions. We lost trust and faith in the church a long time ago, uh, even... In 1966, uh, Time Magazine had that cover story, Is God Dead? That's pretty big for 1966. We've lost faith in journalists. Uh, media trust is like at an all-time low, like I said at the start. We've lost faith in our government institutions uh, to represent us. During the pandemic, there was a massive loss of trust in scientific institutions. Uh, there was a massive doubting of the vaccine itself and who was funding it or you know what it was going to do. And we haven't done well, um, is the best way I can put it, is that we sort of need, as an organizing principle, we need an institution or a thing that we can look to and fall back on and have agreement on that it is true. And I think that's also, that's all to say that I also worry about AI's effects on that. It looks like it's just, we've ramped it up. Like you said, agents of disinformation now have a machine gun the battle against trust now has this extraordinarily powerful and sometimes bespoke tool. And I don't know what we do about that. So potentially we also have a machine gun. So at the moment, spotting disinformation 
is a job for farms of people in just the way that producing it is a job for farms of people. Ultimately, there is a there is a an authority like Snopes or something like that. But there's there's a group of people, probably low paid workers, whose job it is to check stuff. But that is also a job that maybe could be done by AI. And maybe that AI, it doesn't have to be a, a generalized system like ChatGPT, which is good at everything. So we see in areas like cybersecurity, the application of machine learning in a very focused way. So ChatGPT is a very unfocused, like you can produce any text you like. That's the, that's the idea. Right. But the machine learning we use in cybersecurity is we're going to be good at spotting malware. And that machine yeah. learning doesn't write poems. It's got no idea <laughs> how to write a punk rock song. But it is really <laughs> good at spotting malware. It's not perfect. And we are used to the idea that all virus scanners, whether they be signature-based, AI-based, behavioral, whatever, they all produce false positives. So that is another area where we're already just okay with the fact that, all right, these these things are fallible, but on balance, they work extremely well. And so there is maybe an opportunity for us to fix specific problems using that sort of specific machine learning where you don't have to give it all the data in the world. You just need to give it, here's a very focused set of data about solving a particular problem. So I can see like we have all of that on our side as well. But then if AI, if so using these examples that we've been talking about today, if AI is inventing things that have happened. If we look at misinformation, if you're saying, oh, use this AI to go and check this misinformation, you can't then trust that what it says is misinformation actually is misinformation if it's already lying about lots of other things. So how can you then trust that the misinformation spotter is correct. Well, you you can't. But what I'm saying is that you've got a situation, you you maybe have an asymmetric situation. So on the one hand, maybe you've got a generalized, an AI that's good at lots of different things. And maybe you say, it's not important that we are equally truthful everywhere. All statements don't have the same consequences. So I could imagine false statements in the legal community are enormously... That's a very bad thing. And the interesting thing about that is, of course, it was spotted. So, you know, you had somebody using ChatGPT, but it's the job of the lawyers on the other side to go, okay, well, you know, let's check this. But it's not difficult to imagine that you've got, uh, you know, on the one hand, something like ChatGPT, which is good at lots and lots of different things. And then the legal community saying, you know, it's really important that we spot false citations. So let's make a machine learning model that just does that one job. Because that's an area where we really care about truth. It doesn't have to be good at spotting truth anywhere else. It's just going to be really good at spotting untruth in legal history. I think in that situation, actually, it shifts towards the good guys, if you like, because you're saying we've got a very specific problem we want to solve, and we've got lots of data that we can give this machine learning model just to solve this one problem. So maybe that's where we go, that we say, okay, we accept that there's going to be a lot of untruth out there, but we're going to be really good at spotting untruth in particular areas where we really care about untruth. So not just uh, legal. I'm sure there are other areas that you can think about as well, where it's consequential. Yeah, that doesn't sound, I mean, that doesn't sound terrible, you know? Like, I mean, it does sound like, <laughs> you know... <laughs> It sounds I, I, like I had to drag it around everything. somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like everything that we've kind of been through for a long time, which is build up these like little cottage industries that are functional for highly specific purposes. And they're there because of a problem like we've made, 
you know, and this one is just, well, imagine if, you know, we, we just spun up a bunch of companies that trained extraordinarily specific uh, machine learning systems on data sets that are, like you said, for, for like legal precedent that exists, you know, like you could see that happening and then you could see it happening for other things, like probably like medical publications, exactly. you know, and then saying like, okay, has that one been peer reviewed? And they're like, no, it is a nice solution to a thing. It is once again, though, a boy, we love complicating things. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, let's make a tool to it. fix the tool that fixed the tool. Yeah. That fixed the tool. Yeah. Yeah. Let us never make a tool to fix ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I asked when I was lo- looking through about the, the different legal things that had happened and different, um, things where chat GPT's messed up, I thought, I wonder what it would say if I asked it what I have written. So what articles have been written by Anna Brading is what I put in. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's, it always mentions its knowledge cutoff was in September, 2021, because I'm not paying for it. So you, <laughs> <laughs> it's only giving me something. <laughs> so <laughs> anything I've done after that, it does not care about. But it says, uh, Anna Brading was a writer, was, a writer and cybersecurity specialist who contributed to various publications. Fine, right. Uh, she's written articles on topics related to cybersecurity, privacy, and technology. Then it says some of the articles written by Anna Brady include, and it's listed four articles which I've n- not written. So absolutely none of them. And also some of them are really boring and I'm offended. <laughs> like, <laughs> some like of the titling. Made up something more. <laughs> well, I pride myself on my headlines, David, and these are not headlines I would have written. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that it has it's invented things rather than what presumably is reasonably simple is to look up what I have written. I do, yeah, I do on the headline thing. You did send these before yeah. the show. And one of them is protecting your privacy online tips and best practices. And I do have to say that's a terrible headline. Anna. I wouldn't have done it, David. I wouldn't. <laughs> but then I looked and I thought, maybe I did. <laughs> you My work is awful. State. <laughs> I thought I was better than I am. You've just, you've just <laughs> deliberately forgotten those. <laughs> well, I did go and check. I did do- have to double check that I'd actually done it. <laughs> and you hadn't. But I hadn't. No, as far okay. as I can find. As far as I can find. <laughs> I can't 100% guarantee that it wasn't an off day from me. But there are four. It's not like there's one that's like, mm, I don't remember writing that. Four of them, all four at lists, yeah. I don't remember writing. And there are lots of others that I have written that it hasn't listed. That's... All we actually have, well, I say that's all we have time. We talked a lot about AI today, but uh, I did want to thank both of you uh, for coming on today's show and for helping us maybe stare down human singularity and AI singularity and uh, whether or not we become domesticized uh, by the tools we create. What a lovely topic. Uh, Thank you again to the both of you. Thank you. Thanks. I'll go and write some more bad headlines. (laughs) You you can get ChatGPT to do it for you. Oh, yeah. To our listeners, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson, at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.